Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Leibowitz joins us right now. He is with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Good morning. Tell us simply how you have changed your asset allocation. How do you change your equity belief after up 40%? So, you know, I, I think what's, what's most interesting from our vantage point is that we haven't really changed things too much um, from the beginning, from, you know, the start of April. We were really of the view that we wanted to center portfolios in higher quality assets like technology, like healthcare, but we didn't want to completely abandon cyclicality because if markets came back quickly, we wanted to participate. Um, we obviously haven't been fully positioned with a, a cyclical tilt, so we have been underperforming a bit uh, over the past couple of days, but some of our more value cyclical exposure to things like financials has been helping. And so I think that, you know, when we look at where the market is today. Clearly, things have moved very far, very fast. Um, there, there is room for markets to continue climbing higher, but I think now is probably the wrong time to materially change your asset allocation, right? Maybe a month and a half ago, this was the conversation to have, but I think that the risk-reward has continued to deteriorate here, and that makes me a little bit nervous about the direction of travel for markets uh, in the coming weeks. David, sometimes you've just got to take a step back and look at the position we're in right now. If I told you 12 months ago that in 2020, we would have a jobs print of negative 2.76 million, and on the same day, people would call it a big beat and the S&P 500 would go through 3,100, there is no way that you would believe me that that is what would happen. That's what happened in the last 24 hours. David, how do you explain that to clients? You know, I, I think that it's important to recognize that there's, there's a real technical nature to everything that's going on here. And market structure is just very different today uh, than it has been historically. And part of what we think has driven this big rebound, you know, when we look at get cash balances of non-bank investors and things like that, they, they still look underweight equities. But where we've really seen money come back into the market is through the more systematic strategies. And so we had this enormous spike in volatility back in the middle of March. And as volatility has trended lower over the past couple of weeks, you've seen signals triggered that bring the CTAs and the momentum traders and the risk parity funds and the vol control funds back into the market. So I think that, you know, as quickly as we went down, it actually, with some hindsight, doesn't necessarily surprise me uh, the speed at which things have bounced back. But I do think that this is a function of the way that markets are structured today. Um, and that's created a pretty significant disconnect, John, to your point, between what we're seeing in the economic data and the performance of, of equity markets, particularly U.S. equity markets, which have really led the charge here. All right, David. So how long can these technical factors overwhelm the fundamental factors, which are an increasing bankruptcy rate, an increasing unemployment rate, and concern that we could get some sort of W-shaped recovery or some sort of a second wave of the virus? I'm just thinking, for example, high-yield bond yields right now are within one and a half percentage points from the all-time low at a time when the bankruptcy rate is climbing beyond what we saw in 2009. How does this make sense to you? So, you know, I, I think the, the market is very much 
focused on on direction rather than level. And, and with things reopening, that does seem to be overwhelming uh, the the market's ability to look forward. You know, I acknowledge everything you said. We've seen commercial mortgage back uh, security delinquency rates begin to pick up. I mean, there there's a lot of evidence of the stress in the economy, but the market really seems much more focused on the direction of travel of the virus itself and the ability of the economy to reopen. So, you know, to my mind, there there are really two big risks here that investors need to monitor. Uh, the first is a potential for a second wave, and I, I think it's an unfortunate reality given the the protests over the past couple of days here in the U.S. that, you know, to my mind, that risk has increased as social distancing seems to have been put uh, off to the side temporarily. But the other thing that I think we need to pay attention to, and you guys were alluding to it a bit earlier, is simply the, the amount of stimulus that's been pumped into the economy, and more importantly, the expectation uh, that there's more stimulus coming. You know, we have the ECB later today. The ECB historically has tended to, to pull out the bazooka uh, when things aren't looking good, not when we're in the midst of a rally. And so it'll be really interesting to see what happens uh, in just under an hour here and whether they go through and, and increase the size of the, uh, of the emergency programs or whether they hold off a bit. But I think that there's yeah. an inherent <clears throat> expectation on the part of the market that there's more stimulus coming. David, fantastic to catch up with you, as always. David Leibovitz there of JP Morgan Asset Management. Joining us right now, getting right to it on this busy, busy morning, the Lieutenant Governor of the Empire State, Kathy Hochul, joins us uh, this morning. Kathy, what are you going to work on today to move the trend forward? We've gone from rioting and looting to what was called relative calm to an even calmer Wednesday night. What is next for you and the governor? Well, the next step is to really address the concerns of the community that have, have finally come into a forefront. And it's a, it's a tragedy that it took a, the murder of an unarmed African-American and the streets of Minneapolis to get the national attention. But uh, if that's what it took, it's where we are today. We are talking about how we can address the inherent <clears throat> criminal justice injustice system that we now have that, uh, that African-Americans are subjected to and white Americans are not. And so we have a, an agenda of uh, national re uh, reforms that we believe should occur. I believe that when we start taking concrete action, that will address many of the concerns of the protesters. They will feel that they've been heard. And this conversation has to begin in earnest starting today. You know, we have to ban excessive force. We have to have independent investigations of police abuse and disclosing disciplinary records. These are things that the governor and I have proposed in the state of New York, and they should be national. So that's what we do. We start cleaning yeah. up the streets. We start giving people hope that we're going to go forward. And uh, and we also have to make some major systemic changes in order to in take this national moment that has focused the world on what's happening in our country and come out right. better for it. Lieutenant Governor, it is an ageless tension between governors and mayors. It goes back in New York State, at least to Governor Clinton and the three-day trip up the Hudson to Albany. That doesn't happen now. Now it's immediate. Give us an update on the tension between your offices and Mayor de Blasio of New York City. There's certainly issue by issue. I mean, literally just a few days ago, Mayor de Blasio did a joint press conference with the governor to talk about how far we've come in, in eradicating the virus and how we're ready to open New York City, uh, the first phase starting literally on Monday, which is just uh, so, so such good news for New Yorkers that are desperate to start getting back to some semblance of normal. So, so they truly do have a working relationship. Uh, they can disagree with each other. Everybody can disagree. But when it comes down to getting the job done for the people of New York, 
they're able to get it done. And, and I think the evidence is what, what, we've, what we've been able to do with eradicate, you know, working on the coronavirus together. That was intensive teamwork from the state and city officials, and our teams have worked together for the last three months uh, on a day-to-day basis. So it's really case-by-case. Case. Lieutenant Governor, let's talk more about the reopening that is supposed to happen on Monday. There's a question of if you reopen, will they come? And a big, uh, big part of that question is the MTA, the subway system, will it be prepared to take an increased number of riders with respect to hygiene as well as service? How close are we to that? Yes, and you're absolutely right that we knew that we could not reopen society, reopen the economy without the ability to get people safely to their jobs. And yes, we've had a scaled-down service, and we've had the uh, subway closed from from you know, the middle of the night down to 5 a.m. in order to do uh, unprecedented cleaning. You know, you thought that our subways need to be cleaned, but they have been uh, sanitized top to bottom by individuals that have just been working slowly through the night. So we're going to continue those processes. We're going to add more trains. We know that there'll be increased capacity, but people are going to be anxious. You're absolutely right. Uh, we, we want, they cannot get on unless they're wearing a mask. We hope that people will be using hand sanitizers and, you know, to the extent possible, social distancing. But if you have the mask on you, it, it's, we now know that that'll protect you. Again, we, there's more information out there than we didn't even have three months ago. Three months ago, we did not know that mask was the primary way that you can stop the spread. You know, people said it's all on surfaces. Well, we're learning a lot, and we're cleaning the surfaces, requiring masks, and we will get people to their jobs in New York because when we start opening, it's going to be in phased, uh, a phased approach where it's manufacturing, construction, some very limited retail at first, so people start getting acclimated to the new system. Then phase two, which most of upstate New York are, is in right now. I'm in western New York, and we just started phase two this week. That's all retail shopping. It's office spaces. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. But, but truthfully, we've talked about this on the show before. There's going to be a different mindset when people have the ability to continue working from home, at least perhaps for a couple more months. So I think it's going to be a more gradual opening that people won't all of a sudden descend on the subway system and overload it. But if that becomes the case, we're prepared. Lieutenant Governor, I just wanted to wrap up the conversation by talking about lessons learned with you. I'm a guest in this country, but New York City is my home. And I, like many people, was shocked to see the looting that took place on Fifth Avenue, a place that you cannot walk down without usually bumping into a police officer. What happened the other night and what have we learned from it? Well, the governor addressed this and he said that, you know, reminding everyone that New York City does have the finest police force in the nation. They are well-trained. There's 38,000 of them. And the question became, were sufficient number of individuals from the police force deployed on these early nights when, when there was looting going on? And, you know, again, separating out the legitimate right of individuals to protest. This, I mean, our country was founded on a protest. I don't want to remind anyone about the Boston Tea Party, but, uh, you know, we, we, we by nature are going to stand up to oppression and stand with each other when others are opposed or oppressed. And that's, that's in our DNA as Americans. So the right to protest is something that's enshrined in our Constitution, and we hold very dear. But that does not give anyone the right to commit criminal acts, and they must be stopped, and we need to regain order to ensure that the, the safety of people's lives, people's communities, and their businesses. So we've now regained that control. It's important, but it sends a message to the rest of the world that, that we also support legitimate protests. People have the right to bring their grievances to their government, to society, and we in government have yeah. a responsibility to address them. Lieutenant Governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. Kathy, fantastic to catch up with you. Thank you very much for joining us. 
John, as you know, there's something about the first chart you look at uh, every morning. This morning's chart was a Standard & Poor's 500 made up of a few stocks. I can't remember their names right now, but there's four or five stocks that make up like 80% of the 500 stocks and everybody else is trailing behind. I'm kidding. Uh, but we're 7% under where we were Valentine's Day, an extraordinary bull market off the March bottom. Greg Bottle of BMP Paribas, he knows the mathematics of this. He knows the derivative dynamics of this equity surge. Greg, let me begin with first principles. Is it the renewance of a bull market? I don't think so. Um, I view this as a very large bear market rally. But I also think we need to think about this in terms of a two-speed recovery. You touched on it there. I think some of these mega caps, these oligopolistic tech companies, could potentially be in the start of a new bull market, while the rest of the market could still potentially have a much more difficult time ahead of it. Greg, I want to talk about moral hazard. We were speaking yesterday with Bill Dudley, formerly of the New York Fed, saying that the Fed's actions do increase the risk of moral hazard. You could say the same thing about the ECB. As an equity strategist, how concerned are you that this moral hazard will lead to an overshooting and a crash? Well, I think in some ways there are echoes of the late 90s. We had this policy response to LTCM where the Fed came in and cut rates, and really that um, drove the last legs of the bubble that resulted in the in the in the tech bubble in the late 90s and the um, subsequent bear markets in 01, 02. And clearly, we have a situation where we've had real policy shock and awe. And some of the reasons that people are giving to invest now is that there is no alternative and you can't fight the Fed, even though the fundamentals look terrible. And I think there's a real risk of moral hazard for equity markets. Greg, something that Jim Bianca of Bianca Research said recently. I thought was really interesting. It's about Goodhart's law, that once a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. This whole market has become a target. What's it a measure of anymore? Yeah, I think there's definitely a big disconnect in between the outlook for the US economy and the outlook for the equity market. Tom touched on it there, the lack of breadth in the rally, that we have a handful of stocks now, these mega cap stocks that are driving the market directionally, and it's becoming increasingly divorced from the economy. Whereas I think when you look at some of the smaller mid caps, for example, or some of those even second tier large cap stocks, I think they're going to be much more wedded to the cyclical um, direction of the US economy and the outcome that we get there. Good battle of BNP Paribas. Greg, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Now, without question, our interview of the day, Admiral James Trevitas, of course, an author of any number of books, including the Leader's Bookshelf and former Service to this nation, among other things, is Supreme NATO Commander. James Trevitas, the 48 hours here have been extraordinary. I wrote a script about Lieutenant Colonel Esper, about General Miley, about General uh, uh, Mattis, and I wrote a script about Admiral Mullen. They're all on board. Do the soldiers and the sailors of the military, do they have their back? Yes. I think so. Um, as I look out across the force today, Tom, um, we have 1.2 million active duty military, and, and they didn't sign up to uh, dominate protesters, peaceful protesters in a battle space. Um, we've got plenty of law enforcement officers, plenty of National Guard troops who can do the kind of uh, attention to prevent looting that is so important. But I think the military... Uh, recognizes its duty is to the Constitution of the United States. They were ordered to stand on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial as they did. What were your thoughts when Martha Raddatz of ABC showed that image 
of our military, of whichever flavor, lined up like Game of Thrones on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial? You know, Tom, I don't think it's important what I think. Let's think about what Abraham Lincoln must have thought about that as he was looking down from that uh, great republic in the sky. I I think he would have been stunned to think that we'd hit this point over the exact issues that he had worked so hard to keep our country together, to overcome uh, the kind of racism at its absolute peak and slavery. He must have felt as though he had had that occur through the Civil War, and all that work must have felt so undone to him to see armed troops standing there. I I find it uh, saddening to think what Abraham Lincoln would think at that moment. Admiral, just if you could, just give us a sense of how you think maybe the most senior uh, military commanders in this country, how do they feel like they need to react to President Trump? I'll think about the Joint Chiefs when he issues an edict about you know maybe deploying troops to the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, is it simply he's my commander-in-chief and, and therefore uh, I fulfill the order? First, any senior military officer is going to begin by saying, here's my advice on this situation, Secretary of Defense and Mr. President. Well, we will never know because of the professionalism of our senior military what the exact advice they gave the president. But I would guess that they advised him not to do it, that it would be the wrong thing, the wrong signal, Mm -hmm. the wrong step forward. Um, Once the president then overrides, then you have a very tough decision to make as a senior military leader. If it is a lawful order, and it it is a lawful order, it's not a smart order, but it's a lawful order, then you can either execute it or you have to Mm -hmm. resign. I think what we've seen in the last 24 hours, uh, both from Secretary Esper and from General Milley, is them taking a step back and effectively saying to the president through their public pronouncements, hey, we don't agree with this, and now we're going to see what unfolds in the next 24 to 48 hours. Joining us on Bloomberg Radio across this nation, James Stravitas, uh, former admiral with the United States Navy and, of course, Supreme Commander NATO. James Stravitas, the lieutenant colonel, earned a bronze star moving to the left on the road to Baghdad. He's in a difficult position right now. What does the Secretary of Defense do? Is it constructive to resign or does he carry forward waiting to be terminated as is the speculation overnight certainly these are intensely personal decisions and i'm sure for example secretary mattis and white house chief of staff kelly must have wrestled with these kind of thoughts after charlottesville when I think there were a lot of uh, storm clouds gathering and red flags flying about where this was all going. So I am hopeful that Secretary Esper will convince the president, as is his job, uh, to do the right thing here, which is to let law enforcement, National Guard take care of these kind of missions. We do not want to turn this into uh, uh, active duty military rolling tanks down Pennsylvania Avenue or flying helicopters. We actually saw this flying uh, combat helicopters low over protesters. Hey, that's the stuff we do in Afghanistan and Iraq in a war. We don't do that in the United States of America. Admiral, I read some history today, which you are expert on. And folks, I can't say enough about the Leaders Bookshelf uh, by James Stravitas. It's really an important book. 
Uh, Douglas MacArthur didn't have a helicopter when he and a young Eisenhower and Major Patton had to take on the bonus boys of World War One, starving in 1932 in the Depression. MacArthur had a challenging career after that within his acclaim and his bravery and leadership as well. Is that the kind of person the president wants? Is he really in search of the Douglas MacArthur that my grandfather worshipped? I think all presidents uh, reach for active, engaged, forceful leaders. And sometimes the leader you inherit in a situation, let's say Lincoln, we were talking about him earlier, gets McClellan, General McClellan, who's a pretty boy soldier, but he has to go through a lot of generals till he gets to his I General it up, Grant. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we, what we see, I think, is the president reaching for active, engaged generals, but what he really wants is a general who will stand up to him and tell him what he cannot do, what he should not do. I think that's the general that gen- that President Trump needs desperately in this moment. James Trevitas, thank you so much with allusions there, of course, to uh, Mr. Grant as well, General Grant as well. Uh, Admiral Trevitas, uh, we look forward to the next essays from you on this historic moment in Washington. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.